Good morning to you. Uh, very famously, St. Augustine, when he was, uh, I think he was in his mid to late 20s, he was struggling uh, with God, very skeptical of God, and he was at a friend's house, and he heard in the distance a little girl singing a, a, a children's song, and the chorus of the song was, uh, Tole Lego, Tole Lego, take up and read, take up and read. And he took up the Bible. He saw that as sort of God nudging him. And he took up the Bible and he read uh, from a passage. And out of that came uh, a life and ministry which really changed the world. So uh, let's take up and read ourselves as uh, we read from the Gospel of Luke. This is Luke 9, 18 to 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? (coughs) For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they have seen the kingdom of God. That is God's word. Uh, We're at, I guess, a a transitional time in the calendar year uh, with daylight savings. Uh, Similarly, we're in a transitional uh, passage within the ministry of Jesus. You know, one way to think about the Lenten season uh, is to compare it to other seasons in the Christian calendar. You know, if we, we, we could say that with Christmas, we see that God has come in Jesus Christ, Uh, and with the Lenten season, and with this particular passage, we get to see why. Why did he come? He came in order to go to the cross. And what that means for us as Christians is that God didn't just come in Jesus in order to be with us, but that he came in order to rescue us, in order to liberate us, in order to free us. And in so doing, to, very importantly, usher in a kingdom, the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is a theme throughout the New Testament, uh, throughout the Bible, but it is a particular theme that runs all throughout uh, Luke's gospel. And so very early on, in fact, in one of the famous Christmas passages, it says that Jesus was born under the reign of Tiberius Caesar, uh, and uh, Tiberius Caesar was, of course, the, or, uh, yeah, under the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And he was, of course, the son of Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar uh, was thought to be divine. And that was a, a, a 
an idea that uh, Tiberius Caesar put forward. But because Julius Caesar was thought to be divine, uh, there were songs that were sung about Tiberius Caesar that he was the son of God. And therefore, Luke is putting before first century people and he's putting before you and I uh, this simple idea, you might say, that Christmas, this isn't a Christmas sermon, that Christmas isn't really just about one son, but it's about two. It's about two very different sons and two very different kingdoms. One kingdom, the Roman Empire, was built on might. Its character was all about might. And another kingdom, the kingdom of God, discovered in Jesus Christ, was all about being meek. And Luke is saying, which kingdom are you about? Which kingdom do you base your life on? Do you, build, uh, you base your life on a kingdom solely based on might and strength? Or do you base your, your life on a kingdom that's based on, on what it is to be meek? And what does it mean to be meek? That's kind of a weird paradoxical term. What it simply means is to be both strong and weak. Uh, one of my favorite books, I hope you guys will get this book in the back there. I'll talk to Mark about it. It's a book called Strong and Weak. And that's a book written by uh, an author by the name of Andy Crouch. And he says uh, basically that every human being is struggling with these two questions. And the two questions are simply this. What, is it, uh, uh, what am I meant to be? And why am I so far from being it? What am I meant to be and why am I so far from being it? And the response to the first question, Crouch would say, is that human beings were meant to thrive. Human beings were meant to flourish. And in fact, Jesus uh, himself says the same thing, doesn't he? In John 10.10, he says that I have come so that you might have life and that you might have it to the fullest. I've come so that you might flourish. I've come that you might thrive. And yet, the New Testament also says that there is a kind of flourishing that isn't really flourishing. That there's a kind of uh, standard that every society sets for themselves. And every person within that society seeks to achieve that. And based on that particular societal standard, people determine whether they're flourishing and they're thriving. But that's why uh, Paul says to Timothy... He says, watch over your people so that they live the life that's worth living. Right? Watch your people so that they're flourishing in the way that Jesus defines flourishing. Guard them towards the li- or guide them towards the life that really is life. And that's what this passage is all about. Jesus calls his friends to follow him to the cross. Which is, uh, and when he says, uh, follow uh, me to the cross... Um, He's calling his disciples to die, to die to themselves. And as scary and as challenging and as counterintuitive as that is, he's ultimately calling them. When he calls them and when he calls us to the cross, he's ultimately calling us to truly live, to flourish. And so let's just consider that idea here in three, three different ways. Let's consider the paradox of flourishing, the problem of flourishing, and the promise of Jesus. Okay? Paradox of flourishing, the problem of flourishing, and the promise of Jesus. So first, the paradox of flourishing. So there is a life that isn't a really life. There's a flourishing that isn't really flourishing. So what does it mean to truly flourish? What does it mean to be fully alive? 
Well, according to, to Crouch, what it means to flourish is not to either be strong or weak, but to be both, to push into being both strong and weak. In short, if you want to know what it is to flourish, you need to sit at the feet of Jesus. You need to look up, open up the Gospels and just ponder his life from the cradle to the grave, from Christmas all the way to the cross. Just reflect on Jesus, and you'll see one uh, who is holding these two seemingly uh, different qualities together perfectly. He's both strong and weak. He exercises both authority and vulnerability, and he does that in order to bring about the flourishing of other people. So what we see here in this passage is a, is a, a small example of what it means to be strong and weak. Jesus is alone with his friends. He's privately praying in, a, in amidst a room of, of people that he knows. He's praying for their understanding. They receive this understanding that he is indeed the Messiah. He does not say that's not true. He accepts it, which is the greatest sort of title any person could ever hope for. Uh, he, said, he acknowledges that he's the Messiah, and then at the exact same time, he says, hide that information. He says, don't tell anybody about this. Now, of course, on some level, that's strategic, isn't it? He has things to do. If word gets out, if word spreads, right, then his ministry could be cut short, you might say. So on one level, he's strategic. He's saying, don't tell anybody. He's also saying, this information that you have, which is that I am the Messiah, that I'm the answer to everybody's prayers, I want you to hide it within. Don't deny it, but hide it. And in so doing, he's saying, I want you to do what I have been doing all of my life, which is knowing how strong I actually am, and yet walking in vulnerability. Not utilizing it, for my own purposes, not utilizing it to make my life more and more comfortable, but, util- but holding it within, hiding it within the humility, you might say, of his fleshly nature so that he can be closer to people, so that people can touch him, so that he can come within contact of others so that they can be blessed. See, he's pushing equally into flur- into being strong and weak at the exact same time. And he's telling them, I want you to experience what I've been experiencing all my life. I want you to experience on an emotional level and begin to experience on a practical level what it means to carry a cross. You experience emotionally what I'm going to do physically in short order, which is cross-bearing. So let me just define some terms. What does it mean to have authority? And what does it mean to have vulnerability? Authority simply means uh, that you have the capacity for meaningful action. Authority means that we have the capacity for meaningful action as people who are created in the image of God, no matter who you are, no matter what your context is, that you can walk into a room and affect change for good. It doesn't matter what job you have. It doesn't matter what age you are. You could be the youngest child in the largest family, but when you walk and you sit down at the breakfast table that morning, you have agency for good. So, to flourish is to exercise that agency, to recognize that. And that is not easy to do. Right? It's not easy to lead in that way, but that's what it is to have, a, uh, 
to have authority. What does it mean to have vulnerability? Vulnerability means, uh, well, it doesn't mean emotional or personal transparency in this way. Vulnerability doesn't mean emotional or personal transparency because we know that oftentimes, depending on the room that you're in, the more vulnerable you are emotionally, it actually can be a source of, of uh, taking power. It can be used as, as a manipulative uh, tool, you might say. So he's not talking uh, uh, about emotional or, or personal transparency. Vulnerability is simply an exposure to meaningful risk. Vulnerable means to be woundable. That you are willing to take risks with your life. You're willing to take risks with, with your status, your money, your time, your talent, your treasure. For the good of other people. And so you begin to see, like, this is what a, a flourishing life looks like. Somebody who is saying, when I walk into a room, I'm willing to affect change even if it costs me. Even if it costs me. Let me give you three examples of people who you might say flourish. Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks, if you were to ask her, why did she refuse to sit at the back of the bus? She would have said very simply, but very profoundly, because I was tired. But on that day, she, she had agency. She refused to go to the back of the bus. She, she entered, she did something. She, she uh, exercised her authority for meaningful change to bring about good. And it cost her. But in so doing, she changed not only the lives of everybody on that bus and her own life, but she changed the lives of everybody in this room. And she was on a bus in the middle of nowhere, going nowhere. Nobody would have ever, ever heard of that incident. But in God's providence and God's sovereignty, we all know about it. I don't even have to explain who Rosa Parks is. She's, she, she flourished in a moment. And it changed the world. Uh, a woman at my uh, former church, at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, she called me one day and she said, I've just been given this opportunity to work on a particular project. Uh, it goes against the grain of my faith. I really don't want to take it. But I was hired to, as a consultant to do this particular project. And I want to tell them I can't do it. But we really need the money. So I said, I'll pray for you about it. Um, I'm not 100% sure there's a right answer here. This is really, you're going to have to use wisdom and discernment. So she prayed, and the next day she went in and she said, I can't take this contract. This goes against uh, my, my faith. And the boss said, uh, uh, let me think about it. And he came back to her and said, look, we really need you to do this. This is a big contract. You're really the most talented person, so on and so forth. Um, if you don't do it, we're going to lose this, this job. <clears throat> she prayed about it. She came back. She said, I can't do it. So he went back. And I don't know if he prayed about it, but he came back to her the next day. And he said, you know, you were not the only person that actually talked to me about this. And I'm now convicted. And we're not going to take this particular job. And we're going to keep you on. <laughs> right? Small example of what it is to flourish. There's a, uh, a Lieutenant Schwartz 
in the Second World War. He's a German soldier who was uh, assigned to be an executioner. And they were lining up people as they were clearing particular cities. And he was uh, assigned to execute some civilians at this one particular morning. And as he was sitting there with his gun raised, he put his gun down, laid it on the ground, and went and stood with those who were about to be shot. And then he was shot. And they found in his pocket uh, a piece of scripture from 1 Corinthians 13, which talked about what love looks like in action. Nobody ever really knew anything about uh, Captain Schwartz, but we have that story. Here's a person who exercised his agency for good, and it cost him everything. And yet that's what it is to flourish. That's what it is to take up your cross. It's to push in to both authority and vulnerability equally at the same time. And what an exciting life we might lead. What a challenging life we might lead. What a life that we may never expect. But what a witness about what it is to be human in this world. So, the paradox of flourishing. But what about the problem of flourishing? The problem of flourishing is, is simply this. Well, let me go back. What does that have to do with this passage? Jesus is saying to these, his friends, take up your cross. Take it up. Exercise your agency. Take up your what? Your cross. Take up vulnerability. Take up the possibility uh, of being wounded and follow me. Don't just follow me when I'm feeding the 5,000. Don't just follow me when I'm, when, you know, I'm healing the leper, when I'm raising people from the dead. Follow me into areas and situations where you don't see the, the outcome. Trust me. Exercise your authority for meaningful good. Take up your cross. Exercise your, your capacity to be wounded, to be vulnerable and flourish. So the problem of flourishing. Um, Jesus' life is so extraordinary, they don't quite know what he is. They are asking, he says, who are the crowds saying that I am? I'm creating all of this buzz because I'm, I'm showing you what humans are supposed to look like. And they start coming up with ideas. You're John the Baptist. You're a prophet. You're a prophet that was killed, but now you've been raised from the dead. It's just blowing the categories away. They recognize that he's somebody extraordinary. But who don't they say he is like? They don't say, you're just like the religious leaders of our time. <laughs> you're just like the scribes and Pharisees, right? You're, you're just like the experts. No. Now, you know, the picture painted of the scribes and Pharisees in the New Testament is not a pretty one. But they were the religious leaders of the day. And therefore, they knew their Bible well. They lived lives, you might say, of... of um, they strove to live with spiritual integrity, you might say. And I would say that if you go to church in America, I would, let me bring this a little closer. If you go to church in, in New York, in this town, or where I live in West Chelsea, if you're a part of a small group, if you uh, believe that Jesus really did live, if, if you pray, if you believe in God, then you're a religious expert. 
You're a religious leader. And therefore, the onus, if you will, is on us, right? To embody the kind of life that Jesus is calling people to live, to live like. But the problem is, is that we live in a culture in which the narratives of our culture are so strong towards authority and away from vulnerability. The, the, cult, the narrative of our time is, uh, is to get into a good school, uh, or, or I should say, choose a particular job and work your way backwards. How do you get this job in order to minimize vulnerability, to minimize uh, your willingness to be wounded? And so what we do is we find this particular vocation and we work towards it and we put our children in, in a particular school and we guard their life and, and you know, every, all the articles are saying this is the safety generation, this is the generation of, of uh, snowplow parents, helicopter moms, right, in which we are as determined as any parents have ever been to make sure that the possibilities for our children are wide and safe. And the new term out, I just came across it the other day, was that we're creating not just success, successful children, but they're, like, they're successful in the ways that teacups are successful. They look amazing. They look beautiful. They look very detailed. But they're often very, very frail. That when life happens, they cannot... Uh, they're not sturdy enough. They're not sturdy enough in, in, in life. Um, excuse me. And so the danger of being locked into one of these particular cultures, or one of the, this, this kind of particular narrative, where we're always moving towards authority, but we're pushing away from vulnerability, is that we begin, begin to be tone deaf to the way that actually God is calling us, to what God may be calling us to, to the options that he, he may be calling us to. Uh, I've been reading a book lately by, I want to say his name correctly. I, I just picked it up a couple days ago. It's a short read. It's called When Breath Becomes Air. And it was a New York Times bestseller by a, a doctor, a neurosurgeon, and his name was Paul Kalanithi. He's one of the most impressive people I have ever read about, or it's his memoir about his time uh, as, a, as a neurosurgeon. And he was a, a student at Stanford. He got a doctorate at Columbia, or excuse me, at Cambridge. Uh, and he went to Yale Medical School, and then he taught at Stanford uh, Medical uh, Center. Uh, and he discovered that he had cancer, and he died probably about 35 years old. But so he said, I was on this track of really pushing forward uh, uh, towards you know, all of these sort of uh, exercising your authority, all that kind of security. And I, of course, he realized he had an inoperable cancer and he was dead within a very short period of time. But within this, he, he wrote this memoir and he said, you know, it's funny, we all start out really inspired as medical students. And we work so hard and it is so challenging and we see case after case and patient after patient as you're coming through the ranks. And obviously the, the smarter doctors, uh, he says the opportunity is open for them, or the better doctors, the opportunity is open for them. He says, but by and large, those doctors, when, when those opportunities are presented, they do not choose the most woundable 
jobs. They choose the safest and the most lucrative jobs. And he says, I get it. <laughs> I understand. But imagine a world in which those, those, we have those same caliber of doctors in every profession, and they're choosing to actually be, uh, you know, I, I don't want to name any field of, of doctor, but they're choosing to go to a route that is actually puts them in a, a place of, of real wound, uh, woundedness, real vulnerability, to match the kind of authority that they actually have. Andy Crouch says this um, about a culture, the narrative uh, uh, for, for us parents. He says, the competition for the certain schools that we're putting our children in is so fierce because the prize is predictable. A golden ticket to career paths which maximize reward and minimize risk. If you look at life this way, there's no, there is nowhere so safe as Harvard Yard. But if you aim for true flourishing, there is nowhere more dangerous. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong, of course, with excellent schools or well-paying jobs. These are good things. But we really must be aware, and what we mustn't do is simply try to uh, increase our authority in life uh, while minimizing future vulnerability. That's not cross-bearing. Um, and when we do that, when we increase our authority and minimize our vulnerability, uh, we're actually widening the gap from those who are actually suffering in the world. And, and when we do that, when we minimize their suffering, we reject the image of God that is in them and then reject the image of God that's in us. So, in the Old Testament, the Messiah was going to be the one that came and made everything right. He was going to be the one that uh, restored all the systemic brokenness. He was going to want, be the one that uh, all the narratives of our cultures would begin to make sense and be renewed and restored and redeemed. He was the, the one that was going to uh, renew our individual lives. And so it's really important when Jesus asks his friends, who do you say I am? that Peter, with a piece of divine revelation, says, you're God's Messiah. And that's a unique way of saying it. He's not saying, you're the culture's answer. He's saying, you're God's answer to my problems. I look, I'm paraphrasing Peter, I look for Messiahs all over the place. I look for messiahs in my work. I look for messiahs in my home. I look for messiahs anywhere that somebody's going to tell me I'm doing a good job. I'm on the right track. This is the way to go. But then Jesus comes in and he says, no, 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 no. Follow me. And, and in a piece of divine revelation, Peter says, you're God's answer to my problems. You're God's answers to the world." You're, you're God's answer to the world's problems. You're God's Messiah for me and for this world. So uh, that is the, uh, that's the, uh, you know, we have the paradox of flourishing, the problem of flourishing. But what about the promise of Jesus? You know, I had said earlier that to watch Jesus from the cradle to the cross, from Christmas uh, to the grave, 
is to see a person truly flourish. And it's hard to watch somebody who is perfect and try and learn from them. That can be a very uh, demoralizing experience. My wife is something like that. Uh, she's better than, at me, better than me at everything. Um, so I understand how, how, hard, how frustrating and hard that can be. But watching Jesus is something altogether different. Uh, Jesus, um, and so I think we should do that, right? You know, we all have a hope for what humanity could be. We all have an expectation for our own selves that we know that we can be better. And yet when we look in the mirror, we see how far we often fall. It doesn't matter what culture you grow up in. That's, that is the human experience. That's the human condition. We recognize we are profoundly beautiful and yet utterly broken. And yet to sit and just watch Jesus interact with people is also a profound experience because here we see somebody who is profoundly beautiful and yet he never makes a false move. And yet the Bible says that Jesus learned and grew in a very similar way that you and I do. What, how, what's the way to say this? Jesus, of course, is, the, is a paradox in and of himself, isn't he? Because he's the God-man. But we don't want to be, we don't want to um, make the mistake of thinking that he was walking this earth as Superman at all. There was never a time in which God sort of gave him an insurgence of like super energy to help him get through a particular moment. He walked just like you and I did. And there is a, a particular place um, in in the Gospel of Luke 2, where it says that Jesus, as a young boy, uh, that he was flourishing even as a young boy, and that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with both God and man. Think about that. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. means that he grew, he was smarter at 13 than he was at 12. He grew in stature. He was taller at 13 than he was at 12. Uh, he grew in favor with his parents. Uh, they appreciated him more and more as he got older. And I know that experience as a dad. But it says he also grew in favor with God. And what that means is, is that he grew to a place that he was able to do at 33 what he couldn't do at 10. How does somebody perfect do that? Hebrews tells us that he learned uh, perfection through, excuse me, that he learned uh, obedience through suffering. He was made perfect through obedience. And I guess that's the long-winded way of saying to flourish is to be obedient. It's to follow uh, Jesus, to watch his life, to, do, to live as he had lived. And watch him be obedient even uh, unto death, even to death on a cross. And there he, we see Jesus on the cross, hanging between two men, two revolutionaries, which is another way of saying two people who are trying to rob authority. One was mocking Jesus, and the other looked at Jesus with a sign hanging above him that said, King of the Jews. And he looked at him, and he says, This man has done nothing wrong. This man is perfect. This man has flourished. And everybody can tell. 
No truer words had been spoken. And then he asked, would you let me into your kingdom? And as one imperfect being to a perfect being, he did not feel ashamed. He just felt that he wanted, he wanted, to, be, he wanted to have what Jesus had. And Jesus, of course, said, today you will be in paradise. Today you'll be in paradise. So, this year, we might consider what does it mean to be strong and weak? What does it mean to flourish in the name of Jesus? What does it mean to deny ourselves, to place ourselves in, in situations where we're vulnerable, to take up our cross daily, to go to the place of death, trusting that uh, there is resurrection? Uh, friends, when was the last time that you silently prayed for a friend in a crowded room so that they might know that Jesus is God's Messiah and that all the other false messiahs, the, the pseudo-messiahs that we, uh, we bow down to that offer temporary safety and you know, pseudo-flourishing, uh, that he's better than them all. And I'd ask if you're considering Christianity, what would it be like to keep considering to take risks this year and enter into the life of this particular church and to engage the one, Jesus, who's risked everything for you? Let's pray about these things. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, you had all authority, have all authority. And yet you made yourself vulnerable so that we might know you. So that we might experience your love. And so that we might not just be sitting on the sidelines as you move throughout this world, but that we might be uh, brought into the game, so to speak. That we might be ambassadors and mediators and advocates and counselors and every other profession uh, right alongside you. Lord, would you give us lives that, that our neighbors and our friends and our enemies would look at us and say, who are they? Of what substance are they made of? Lord, would you give us uh, uh, a hold on the things that you have, you've provided for us that is so light that we're able to give freely of our time, our talent, and our treasure. Lord, help this church be the kind of witness in this particular day and age that our neighbors need and crave. Lord, I pray that for myself. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to come to the table here, and this is a table of abundance. This is a table in which we see the body and blood of Jesus Christ uh, represented here in the elements. It is a table in which God gladly had his body broken, his blood shed, to invite people into a feast so that we all might experience his flourishing. Uh, this is a, a family meal. This is a meal for those who profess faith in Jesus, who are part of a gospel-centered church. Uh, if that is, does not describe you, you shouldn't feel compelled in any way to come forward and partake of these elements. But this isn't a wasted time for anybody. Uh, there are hymns to reflect on. It's an opportunity to pray. 
if you are on the fence, one way to get off of that fence is to not just partake of this meal, but partake of Christ. Take a risk. It's okay to be vulnerable. This church is a safe church. Um, so, let me give some directions here. I'm kind of giving them to myself. Uh, we have gluten-free bread, and we have uh, other, other bread. <laughs> and we have wine, which is, in, which is in the red, and then we have juice, which is the white. Uh, we'll make two lines uh, to partake. You can come forward, uh, just take the elements and, and be seated, and we'll partake of the, the, the elements together. May I pray? Lord Jesus Christ, I'm so touched, Lord, when I think of uh, the Lord's Supper, Lord, that you took this bread knowing it was the feast of the Passover, and you broke it knowing it was a symbol of your body, and you said to your Father, thanks, thanks that I get to love people into glory, into wholeness. Uh, not just in heaven, but here now, in earth, on earth. So, Lord, would you let us partake of this meal and taste of his love and his power and his promise. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.